Welcome. You may be a member at Rochester Church of Christ, or you may follow us regularly online, or you may have been referred to this by a friend. Either way, we're glad you're here. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I hope that this message will speak into your life with the good news about Jesus. I want to read again from Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Heavenly Father, We have no hope but you. We have no life but you. We're so thankful. So thankful for Jesus. So thankful for the Lamb who was slain, for the Lamb who conquered. Father, forgive us when we look to any other God. May we be yours and yours alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This image from Revelation 5, the Lamb taking the scroll from the one on the throne. You may remember from our study two weeks ago that we were brought into the throne room of heaven. We saw God holding this scroll with seven seals that no one's able to open. And John weeps because he realizes how important the scroll is. Because what's inside the scroll is nothing less than the very reason for all of human history. But then, praise God, the lamb is able to open the scroll. And no one was able to open it until the lamb arrived. And that's where we're going to pick up. What does it look like when the scroll gets opened? Now, I will tell you, chapters 6 through 16 in the book of Revelation contain a series of three sevens. 
Now there's some other interludes, there's some things that happen, but we're going to get three sevens. First we're going to start off and we'll talk today about the the seven seals. And then as the seventh seal opens, it calls forth the next set of sevens and it's seven trumpets. And then after some more interlude, when the seventh trumpet sounds, it opens up seven bowls of God's wrath that are going to be poured out. And these these three sets of seven are presented in such a way that it's caused some interpreters to look at them chronologically and say that this is a list of 21 things that are going to need to happen in this particular order in order to lead up to the judgment day. And what I would tell you is that it is much much more likely that rather than being 21 things in order, this is three different glimpses at the same experience. Okay, that you're getting multiple perspectives. Just like we have four Gospels in our Bible that show us the story of Jesus from different angles, so you're getting three different sets of seven things that are telling you the same story of God's judgment from three different angles. And borrowing heavily from Old Testament texts, some you'll know, some you won't, These visions are designed, on the one hand, to terrify and bewilder, but on the other hand, to provide hope for the faithful. I do want to remind you as we start through this that there are some important principles that we discussed early on in this series that I, want, I just want to bring to our, to our mind again. First, that when we are interpreting Scripture, we want to make sure that as a baseline— We generally follow this rule, that this text does not mean for us something it could never have meant for them. Okay, that when it was written, it is written to an original audience who would have understood something from it. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm telling you, I believe in the superintendence of Scripture, or the superintendence of the Spirit, To give us the scriptures, I believe the Spirit can illuminate the scriptures. But as a general rule of interpretation, it is wise for us to remember that it probably does not mean for us something it never could have meant for them. Second, the book of Revelation, I know it's a little odd and it's a little difficult, but the truth about the of the, uh, the book of Revelation is it doesn't say anything that hasn't already been said. Especially what we find out is that today's text covers a lot of the same material that you'll find in Matthew 24. When Jesus tells you, in those days there will be rumors of wars. There will be rumors of sickness. There will be earthquakes. There will be famine. Okay, but when Jesus talks about the day of the Lord, he's going to say the same things that now Revelation is going to riff on a little bit. But there's nothing here that hasn't already been said by Christ. Let's jump into chapter 6 and let's look at what happens. Now in the first eight verses, we are introduced to four characters that folks know pretty well, at least in theory. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
All right, here we go. I watched as the lamb opened the first of seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come on out, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. This rider held a bow. He was given a crown. He rolled out, he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard a living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and don't damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. All right, so who do we have in these four? I want to I briefly talk about the four horsemen because there's been a lot of ink spilled about the four horsemen and who we're supposed to identify them as. But I, I want to let you know that, 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 that this is our crew. And, and we start and we say, okay, the first horse is the white horse. And on it, there's someone in a white robe. There's someone who's coming out with a crown and he's given a sword. And, and there's every part of us because somewhere deep in our recesses, we have think that we have read in Revelation 19 that Jesus will show up on a white horse in a white robe with a sword coming out of his mouth and talk about the victory he's won over the enemies of God. And we say, boy, that sounds a lot like that. So is this Jesus? And then we realize, doesn't, I don't know if it's Jesus, because here we got, a, we got some things that are different. We got a crown, we got a bow, but a crown, Adam, that sounds more like Jesus. Okay. There are some folks that see in this passage, in this mention of the white horse, a, a, an imposter Jesus. An imitation with its white horse, its white robe. It's, it's like Jesus in Revelation 19, but then this is the opposite because the other three riders are not good guys. So why would Jesus be hanging out with that crew? And so instead they say this is the imposter savior, this is the antichrist. Okay, and in some ways I hear what they're saying, they say this is an imitation savior. And, and here's what I know, there is always a way to believe in a Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. I know that's true. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think that this is the Antichrist. All right? In, in, in one sense, I think we've become so fascinated by the idea of an Antichrist that we've missed the point of what those passages talking about Antichrists were doing. Okay, what John was saying in his, first, in his letter, his first epistle, he says that anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist. Okay, notice we've added a really important article to that. It's a definite article, the antichrist. 
as if we're looking for one person. John is not so much talking about one person as he's saying these people have set themselves up against Christ, anti-Christ. What we have here, others connect this image more historically with the Parthian army of cavalry archers. Okay, and, and, and they would ride white horses because white horses were striking, especially going into battle. It's not usually wise to ride a white horse into battle. They stand out. It was always great to ride a white horse on the parade because they stand out. Most people didn't ride a white horse into battle, but the Parthians did. And as a matter of fact, they, you saw that the, the, the rider is given a bow. He held a bow. Okay, not a sword, a bow. Parthians were mounted cavalry. They were the only ones in the ancient world doing that. Normally your cavalry, if they were Roman, was set behind the, the, the infantry and would shoot over it. The Parthians just kind of merged the two. They were the largest and most threatening enemy of Rome to their east. That if, that if Rome tried to expand east, they were going to hit the Parthian army. And I'll be honest, they gave Roman soldiers and generals nightmares. And so for, for him to say, I see this rider that looks a lot like our worst enemy. And God has summoned him out. You see, the white horse represents power and conquest and control and vanity and war. And the red horse is violence and slaughter. That humanity is bent towards war and violence, towards violent coercion. And our history is one of strife and conflict. And when let loose, the damage looks an awful lot like the purge. The black horse comes out and it's, and it's got the scales, right? And it's calling out, the, the, the instructions are calling out saying, give, it, give them two pounds of wheat for a whole day's. Well, we know what that is. <laughs> this is where I'm going to get in danger. That sounds like inflation. You're going to give them not so much food for an awful lot of money. Sounds familiar all of a sudden, right? Now, I'm going to say this is way worse than what we're enduring. I, please don't go home and say, our preacher said <laughs> that right now, this is, the, this is the black horse riding through. The black horse represents famine and, sh and, 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 and coming up short. But there's this amazing, there's this really interesting part to the black horse that I think it stands out to me. Two pounds for, of wheat for a day's wages. That is not a lot, by the way. And six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Uh, those are the things you need. But don't damage the oil and the wine. Now, some people say the reason you don't damage the oil and the wine is because the wheat and the barley, <clears throat> tear those up when you invade because those can be replanted and regrown next year. But the wine, the vines, and the oil, the, the, the vines that produce the olives, those take, I mean, an olive tree takes 17 years to regrow. So if you were an invading army looking to take over land, you wouldn't destroy the olive trees. Why? You want them. And it's going to take 17 years to regrow them. 
So tear up the fields, burn the fields, but don't mess with the vines and the olives. That could be it. But I do also find this interesting thing at work. He says, get rid of the wheat, get rid of the barley, get rid of the things they eat to survive, the things they need. Leave them the wine and the oil, the luxuries that they don't. And when I think about this world, and I think about how willing we are to go without the things we need in order to have the things that we want but don't need. Okay, that's physical famine, but let me tell you, that is also spiritual famine. We are spiritually famished in this country because we so often go without what we really need in order to have what we simply want but don't need. And then he calls out the fourth horse. And, and the color of the horse says the pale horse. The, the, the language here, I think pale is probably the right, I don't know, good word to choose. Um, <laughs> ready to get gross? Here we go. Literally, the color that is mentioned means uh, the yellowish green clearness of bile. Awesome. Thanks, preacher. <laughs> Very much appreciate you letting me know about that. This is the color of gross. Okay, and, 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 and this, this pale horse, its name is, the rider's name is Death. And Hades follows it. This is, this is like, and, and Hades, um, we're used to, um, <clears throat> we're used to hearing that read from the King James where it says, and hell followed after him. Uh, the Greek word there, Hades, does not mean hell. Hades is like Sheol in the Old Testament, the place where dead people go. And so death is coming and its holding cell is right behind it. All right, so there's a lot of people that are going to die from this pestilence, this sickness, what death is bringing. Now these four, these four are the major players in the suffering of humankind throughout history. And across all regions and all cultures, these four still make sense and still strike fear. The four horsemen, I think, still ride around the world today. And the point is that the threat against the world and the threat against our security is there, and these images are meant to evoke that. I don't believe it's chronological. Rather, they point to a unified destructive judgment unleashed in the world. War leads to bloodshed, and it usually is accompanied by famine due to economic destabilization and widespread death. It's a package that always shows up together. We can count on it. At bottom, these four bring us to a painfully dreadful yet utterly necessary conclusion. There is nothing in this world that's safe. And then in verses 9 and following, the Lamb opens the fifth and sixth seals. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are the martyrs. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the full number of the, fo of the fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
So the fifth seal, and, and, and by the way, these two seals, the fifth and sixth seal, they're going to give believers courage because they contain two promises. The first one you've seen, God is going to vindicate his saints. The second one is that the world is going to recognize its creator. Look what it says. It says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. When the whole moon, it turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as, as fig drops, as figs drop from a tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Okay, so the fifth seal shows us the martyrs of humanity who have suffered at the hands of the world. And because they've been condemned in the courts of the world, they now seek vindication in the courts of heaven. The positioning of the martyrs under the altar is no accident. You see, when the sacrifices were offered, the blood was put under the altar. The blood poured down under the altar. And so this is where their sacrifice is gathered. They are under the altar and they say, how long? It's a typical prayer for, uh, for God's people to pray, how long, when looking for vindication. When asking for God's intervention. And God's answer is a little longer. It's indeterminate, but it does give assurance that the time is finite and will not prove too long for them to bear. And then the sixth seal opens and all of a sudden the cosmos is completely undone. What you get here is a picture of cataclysm. And the way that it's designed to work is not to be read literally. Okay, the stars fall to earth. All right, well, in order to do that, they would have to turn into black holes. And then there's really only one that's pretty close to us, and we call it the sun. And that's going to be problematic to us if that turns into a black hole. So it's not, we're not talking astronomy. We're talking cataclysm. We're talking all of creation being undone and reversed. So that the good creation God had made is being torn apart bit by bit. So that the sun goes out. So that there's earthquakes. So that the moon turns red. So that stars fall. The sky rolls up like a scroll. Mountains and islands are, are removed. And then in verse 15 and through 17, we see that the world finally realizes that it stands under the Creator's judgment. Notice who it is that hides in verse 15. Kings and great ones. Generals, the rich and the powerful, those who are most comfortable, most revered, and most at home in this world. And as the cosmos is, as the cosmos is torn apart, everyone loses all of the security they believe they controlled, and they're forced to come face to face with the true power of the universe. Judgment is inescapable. And it's coming for the weak and the strong alike, for the poor and the rich alike, for the faithful and the unfaithful alike. Who can save us, they cry. Kings and governments? No. No, not them. Armies and weapons? No, as a matter of fact... 
That's the red horse. The red horse isn't coming to save you from the red horse. You don't escape war with war. Is it the wealthy? Can they save us? No. They can try and buy escape, but there's ultimately nothing you can do, and you end up begging that the rocks will just fall on you rather than have to face the one that you've denied the whole time. It's a very interesting phrase there at the end, where in verse 16, where it says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is a very striking phrase. Lambs are considered peaceful and docile. And yet, the wrath of the Lamb is brought forth. And the question is asked at the end, who can save us? Chapter 7 is going to answer it. And I don't have time to read all of it. But what it says in chapter 7 is, as as it starts in verses 1 through 8, it says John sees four angels at the corners of the earth. Now that's uh, the cardinal directions. Northeast, southwest. Don't don't stress over whether or not a sphere has corners. Um, But the the, the four corners. And, And then another angel who says, hold on. Everything we've just read needs not to happen yet. First, we need to seal God's people to protect them. Okay, God has the power to protect his people even from his judgments. All right, he says, we're going we're gonna to seal the people first and then the judgments will be pronounced. So they start to seal the people and what they do is they call out. And it says, it says and it's really important, that it says that he hears. John heard, right? Then I heard, verse 4, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. John hears the number, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, I'm going to be clear about this. This number is not literal. For all of you that I see counting, you're like, one, two, three, four, five, um, maybe six. All right. That's probably us. Okay, this is not a literal number, 144,000. As a matter of fact, this number is wonderfully symbolic. It's, it's 12 squared times a lot, like times 10 cubed. Like, like, like it gets wild. All right, so, so these numbers that have been really important and symbolic for a while are coming together, and it symbolizes 144,000 because of the way that it works. It symbolizes completeness and infinity. It symbolizes a number that can't be counted. Now, interestingly, these numbers are going to appear again in chapter 21. And it's when they measure out the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Guess what the dimensions are? 12 by 12 with 10 times 10 times 10 in a cube. It's 144,000. So here in chapter 7, we're being given a little bit of a glimpse that says there's 144,000 inhabitants for 144,000 spaces in the new Jerusalem. In other words, there's this perfect match that God is working on, where the inhabitants of the place that he's preparing will be matched perfectly with the place he's preparing for them. Okay, so there's this promise of what's coming. And then, I love this part, 
they start singing. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. They start singing. I love this quote by Eugene Peterson. He says, These people are not only secure, they're exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon that the most frightening representations of evil, Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise, Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. Who can stand? They asked. Jesus answers, my people can stand. And not only will they stand, they're going to sing. Even in the face of the riders. Even in the face of the great day of trouble, my people will stand and they'll sing. Do you remember back in chapter 5 when they said, who can open the scroll? And John was weeping. And an elder comes along and says, don't worry, the Lion of Judah can open it. That John hears the Lion is coming. But then, Juana, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. He heard that there was a lion, and he sees that there's a lamb. It's the same thing, the lion is the lamb. Now, in chapter 7, he hears that there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. But when he sees, chap, what does it say? Innumerable. Can't be counted. There's way more than 144,000. And they're not just from the tribe of Israel. They're from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. What he heard and what he saw are the same thing. But just like the lion was actually the lamb, so the 144,000 are actually an innumerable host from across all nations. They are innumerable. They are diverse because God doesn't obliterate culture. God takes what is useful and good in each culture and transforms it into an instrument for the praise of his glory. And they're wearing white and they're standing at the throne. Can he go ahead and come up? And all, because after all, we got to sing, right? I already said they're going to stand and sing here in just a minute. All of us, that's right, you're going to have to act like you have a palm branch. All of us faithful witnesses of Christ are God's sealed people. Many have read this and they see the 144,000, they see the way that it's broke down and they say, this is God's army. And it may be. That that's the image we're supposed to get. This is the host of God. This is, this is God's army. But understand when we say that, we have to be careful because we're his army. But we're not the killers of God's opponents. We're not executioners. We're an army of martyrs. 
There's one other group that was given a white robe in this. It's the martyrs under the, un, un, under the altar, if you remember. Now, all of God's people are given white robes. There's something to come. You see, we're an army of martyrs who follow our slaughtered lamb. And I know that that sounds like an oxymoron. Like jumbo shrimp. (laughs) Or tight slacks. Or you get the picture. An army of martyrs? What good is that? I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but so do robes that are washed white in the blood. You, you, you look at verse 14. He said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How in the world is that going to happen? You don't wash white robes in blood and get white. But perhaps such vivid contrasts with human expectations are the point. Besides, while we were caught up in the vision, another unexpected twist took place while they were singing. Look down at verse 17. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All of a sudden, the lamb has become the shepherd. Did you catch it? This is the kind of miracle that takes place that only God can do. That the lamb becomes the shepherd. That an army of martyrs can win the victory. And we're called to live and be like him. Our lamb has conquered. Amen? Amen. So we're called to follow him. And maybe today... You're more familiar with the four riders than you are with the lamb. And you've been through the pain that the riders bring. My prayer is that you placed your hope in Christ. That you give yourself to Christ. That you claim the victory of the lamb. That you surrender everything else for the sake of Christ. Give yourself to him. Be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you can march alongside the Lamb, taking up the victory of dying to yourself. Because this is the gospel. The victory comes through surrender and that life comes through death. Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.